Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today's episode is all about maintenance care in physical therapy, especially as it relates to our Medicare beneficiaries, our Medicare populations. And to help us weave through this minefield of confusion and misinformation, I have two fabulous physical therapists, Dee Cornetti and Cindy Kraft. They are the co-owners of Cornetti and Kraft Healthcare Solutions. A little bit more about Dee. She's a physical therapist for 35 years, a past administrator and co-owner of a Medicare-certified home health agency. She is nationally recognized as a speaker in the areas of home care, standardized tests and measures in the field of physical therapy, therapy training and staff development, including OASIS coding and documentation in the home health arena. She is the current president of the American Physical Therapy Association's home health section and serves on the APTA's National Post-Acute Work Group. She also serves as the president of the Association of Home Care Coding and Compliance and a member of the Association of Home Care Coders Advisory Board and Panel of Experts. She has served as a content expert for standard settings for decisions, Decision Health Board of Medical Specialty Coding, Home Care Coding, and OASIS Credentialed Exams. So what we're saying here is she's got a lot of experience and she really is an expert. She is a published researcher, has co-authored APTA's Home Health Section Resources Related to OASIS Goal Writing and Defensible Documentation for the Practicing Physical therapist. A little bit more about Cindy Kraft. She is, an, like I said, the owner of Cornetti and Kraft Healthcare Solutions based in Florida. She brings more than 25 years of home health expertise that ranges from direct patient care to operational management issues, as well as a passion for understanding regulations. For the past 15 years, Cindy has been a nationally recognized educator in the areas of documentation, regulation, therapy utilization, and OASIS. She currently serves on multiple technical expert panels with CMS contractors working on clinical and payment reforms and bundled payment care initiatives. She is an active member of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice and currently serves on multiple committees. She has written three books, including... The Post-Acute Care Guide to Maintenance Therapy with her business partner, Dee Cornetti. And we are going to talk about that book today. And if you listen all the way through the, to the end of the podcast, they have a special offer for anyone wanting to purchase the books. So you can get an extra 10% off of that book. So definitely wait to the end if you want to get that book. So if you are working with patients who are Medicare beneficiaries and they need maintenance care and you want to make sure that you are reimbursed for that care, then definitely listen to this entire episode because Dee and Cindy, along with Sherry Teague, they are the owners of Cornetti and Craft Healthcare Solutions. This is what they do. They are experts. So I 
I implore you to uh, listen through. There's a ton of great information here. So we talk about maintenance therapy in the home, how to diversify your revenue. They bust a few maintenance therapy myths and talk about how maintenance patients can have a goal statement if they're never going to get better. So listen through. I loved this episode. I learned a lot. A big thanks to Dee and Cindy. Hi, Dee and Cindy. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you guys on. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Glad to be here. Excellent. So today we are going to be talking about maintenance therapy. So when a lot of physical therapists think about maintenance therapy, they often think that, well, this is something that's not reimbursed. This is something that maybe the patient doesn't quote unquote need. So today we're going to talk about what it is, some of the myths and a lot of other stuff surrounding maintenance care. So my first question is, can you define what maintenance care is or maintenance therapy? Uh, Karen, this is Cindy. I'll take that one. Um, I think, you know, just as you were saying the word maintenance, I'm sure at least one listener twitched a little, the eye twitch, the uncomfortable. Uh, Many times when you say the word maintenance, it looks like, you know, people react like you swore in church. Um, Like, oh, I I don't do that. Or I, you know, somebody does that and get in trouble. And and I think even the word has become a barrier. So Dee and I have tried to reframe the conversation by getting to the heart of what it is, by referring to it as stabilization of function. So putting aside that baggage and the history of the word, the approach to care is saying, I'm utilizing all the the wonderful things I know as a therapist, my ability to assess and all of those great things and develop a care plan. But the end result that I'm going for is a stabilization or preservation of their functional level or slowing of decline. I think maintain can get people tied up in knots and miss the point or think that we have to do all kinds of different things, which we'll talk about in a moment with the myths. But I really think it helps to to approach it as we're talking about stabilizing someone's function. That makes a lot more sense. And I really like that word. Um, And you're right. I feel like maintenance care does kind of give people that, oh, I don't know if that's quite my lane. But when you say stabilization of function, preservation, decreased speed of decline, I think physical therapists are like, yeah, of course, that's what we do. Yeah, well, ahead, think Dave. about it. We, we, we treat patients that have these chronic diseases, right? They, we don't cure them. They go to doctors, numerous doctors, you know, cardiologists, primary care, right? With their, with their heart conditions. They see nursing, right? They see all kinds of disciplines uh, and all kinds of professionals, uh, but they're never getting cured. They're, it's management of their symptoms, right? So, so it's to, um, like Cindy said, we are, we're going to preserve function. We're going to, you know, optimize their ability. We're going to re- um, hopefully use our skills, knowledge, and ability to uh, reduce their demand or their requirement of higher cost centers of care. What happens when you have poorly managed symptoms of chronic disease like COPD or CHF or diabetes? These people use urgent emerging care. These people go in the hospital. This is extremely costly to our to our medical system. And it's, it's not sustainable as as an aging pot, you know, as we age as the population. And so this idea that there's things we can do to have people function optimally, no matter what phase or stage of this chronic condition they're in, 
to, so that they're not as dependent or um, on higher cost centers of care, or they don't realize the kind of sequela, you know, think about a diabetic with poorly managed blood sugar, you know, that starts to develop retinopathy, nephropathy, peripheral neuropathy, right? All these other problems that happen, um, you know, that's all very uh, manageable if we can get in early and often and preserve and optimize. I even say optimize function. So we're not improving people necessarily because sometimes they haven't already experienced a decline. A lot of times we're just going in there to share what we know so that they can be accountable and manage these chronic diseases themselves. Yeah, that makes so and much Karen, sense. Karen, I would add to that, you know, for your listeners, because some folks, you know, Dee and I have been talking about this for years. Um, some folks have a difficult time with this conversation, not just the word, but the concept. It sounds good. It sounds valuable. But I think we have to take a moment and acknowledge how deeply as therapists, we have defined ourselves by that word improvement. You can see it in our documentation. If you're going to get physical therapy, you're going to walk five feet more or 10 feet more every time I get near you, um, because that that's what I have to do. And that if I'm not improving you, we've all been told that if, you know, after a certain number of visits or certain number of treatments, if you don't see improvement, you're obligated to discharge people. Um, when you start finding out that that isn't really true and it hasn't really ever been true, I think we got to give ourselves a little bit of grace here and realize that this can be quite the seismic shift internally about how we value ourselves as therapists, how we define ourselves, and how we're defining ourselves to our patient populations. I think to the patients, to the potential patients, to our other members of the interdisciplinary team, we've done such a bang up job talking about improvement that when they don't feel that they're going to improve as as the, the beneficiary or other members of the team say, well, that patient isn't going to get better. They don't even refer them to us. They don't even come to us because we've created this wall of you have to be able to get better or you can't come to physical therapy. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, Cindy, what's your favorite line when you talk about how we are addicted? Like we, we are ingrained with improvement. What is your favorite line to say? Oh, I <laughs> Well, I created a little self-assessment, like you answer these questions and get these points about how addicted are you? Um, because it, I, I feel very comfortable using that word because this challenges a lot of those core beliefs. And we have identified ourselves by this so tightly that it's like, okay, we, we have to step outside of our comfort zone a bit. And then as we see therapists start to do that, then we get the questions, then we get the okay, I kind of understand it. But what about this? And what about that? And what about this other thing? And that's when the myths all start to bubble up to the surface with where did that even come from? Yeah. So let's talk about some of those myths and see if we can bust them. Um, so I will, I'll take, I'll throw it over to you guys. Either one of you can start, but let's talk about a couple of myths of maintenance therapy. Uh, uh, for me, one big one is, well, it's not covered. It's not covered I'll, by insurance. I'll take that one. This is day. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, um, you know, maintenance has been part of the Medicare benefit. Um, under both any Medicare beneficiary, Part A or Part B, since 
you can find it in the Medicare Benefit Policy Manual as far back as the as the 1980s. So it's been around forever. This is not new. That Jim O.V. Sebelius case that was brought forward um, just kind of shined the light on it. But it's never been um, that if you don't improve, then services aren't covered or you don't have you know this idea that rehab potential is the ability to improve. No, rehab potential that we all typically document at some point is the responsiveness to care, right? That's what rehab potential is, whether the care is going to uh, allow you to improve from where you are at the baseline of assessment or to maintain or stabilize your function um, from where you are now without any unforeseen event in the next three, six, nine, 12 months, two years, are you going to be able to manage this condition and not decline, right? Or if you're in a progressive uh, type of disease process, are you functioning optimally? And are we slowing that deterioration or decline that is a normal part of the condition? So Cindy, I can pop uh, punch it over to you. And um, since we talk about it being paid, I think we busted that Karen, right? We busted that pretty good. I think so. Okay. So, so, So other payers, I don't know. But anybody that um, is a Medicare provider, so um, under Part A or Part B, it, it is part of the benefit, okay? So Cindy, talk to me about what are the type of conditions that are covered by maintenance, as if the diagnosis determines it? What do we know about that? Well, very often what we hear is, okay, I understand maintenance therapy. I know what it's for. It's for people who have progressive neurological conditions. So it would make sense for Parkinson's. It makes sense for MS. It makes sense for ALS. So it must be those three patient populations that are maintenance. Okay, we got to step back for a minute. There are patients with those three conditions um, that benefit and have the ability to improve with therapy. So it's not Parkinson's is synonymous with maintenance. Um, and there's nothing in the coverage criteria that is diagnosis specific. Um, diagnosis is only one piece of the conversation. It is where are they functionally? What are the what is the impact of this diagnosis and their assorted comorbidities on their functional ability? And what does a therapist know? What is that skill that you bring to the table that is unique to that discipline that is indispensable to this patient? But I think the myth of coverage has some roots in the denial issue. Um, we, we can't go past this point without acknowledging that therapists have seen denials for providing maintenance therapy, that you did not show improvement and wham, they took away payment for part of this care, which is what drove the Jimmo versus Sebelius conversation that led to the court settlement with CMS to basically say, you know, hey, we've looked at this benefit. It doesn't say you have to improve to get services. And, and we're, we're good friends with Judith Stein, who was the lead attorney in that case and still has the ability to call CMS back on the carpet uh, in the legal sense about how that settlement has played out since because CMS basically approached it with a, oops, you're right. It doesn't say that. Shame on us. But it's like, wait a second, um, you've been denying coverage of services for a long time. And so it's very hard to say, yes, it's in there and we understand it's in there. And Dee and I have explained the fundamental pieces of that, but there's still that I got denied or I know somebody who got denied. Um, this can't possibly be true. And it's unfortunate. And, and my personal opinion is I have a really hard time with CMS just kind of oopsieing it versus, you know, 
ownership. And we saw a subsequent event to the initial Jimmo case that compelled CMS to put on their resources, particularly on their website, where they had to, quote, disavow the improvement standard. So not just say, oopsies, but say you have to flat out say that does not exist. And if beneficiaries qualify for these services, they absolutely should get them. Yeah, the 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 whoopsies, my bad defense never ever seems to go over well, does it? No, no, no. Okay, so we talked about is it covered? We talked about diagnoses covered. What other big myths are there surrounding maintenance therapy? All right, Cindy. Well, I go got ahead. one for you, Dee. I've <laughs> got, right. you know where I'm going. Um, we very often hear this say, okay, so if it's not about their diagnosis, I need to assess the patient, right? Figure this out. So now looking at what I typically do in an assessment, oh, tests and measures? Well, those must not apply then. I, I wouldn't be using tests and measures on a maintenance patient. And we would say, well, why not? Well, why would I measure something? If I measure it again later and it's the same, then why did I measure it to begin with? So any thoughts on those tests and measures in the maintenance patient, D? Yeah, well, and, and I'm going to tie it to goal statements too from there, right? So, so this idea, why do we take objective measurements of patients to establish a baseline, right? And we need to do that regard, you know, based on the presentation of the patient, regardless of their diagnoses and comorbidities, because we want to see if they're functioning at or near where we would expect them. Think of a class three heart failure patient. Are they functioning where you would expect, you know, a class three heart failure? failure patient to function? Or are they functioning like end stage, right? Class four, are they functioning below where you would expect them to function? And so obviously, if there's room for improvement, a, a, a restorative or an improvement course of care is what your skills would be indispensable for. That's what would make your care medically necessary under the Medicare benefit, Part A, Part B. That's what it would do. So the, the tests and measures establish that baseline and you compare. This is how the patient's functioning. This is how we'd expect them to function. Now, when you get a patient who is functioning at or near where you would expect them to have functioned with, with their, their presentation, the question you have to ask yourself is, you don't just jump right to maintenance, right? You can't just say, okay, this is a maintenance patient. They need me. You have to ask, what do they need me for? You know, is there something I can teach them, train them, provide them so that they continue to stay, be stabilized, maintain, be accountable for their care over a longer period of time? right? And if the answer is yes, then you absolutely should pick them up on, on, on a, a maintenance course of care because there's some sort of skills, your knowledge, your expertise, that which makes you you, what I like to call the magic that is me as a PT, right? And we've all had those magic that is me moments when you ever, whenever you walk or, or you, you readjust a, an assisted device to properly fit a patient and people look at you like, <gasps> oh my gosh, why didn't we think of that? And it's just like, because you're not the magic, that is me. I mean, I and we take it for granted. So the idea is that tests and measures absolutely help you establish a baseline and determine if there's room for improvement or if they are functioning at or near where you would expect them to function based on the severity, the course, the interplay of these disease processes. Um, and then that helps you pick which course of care, restorative or improvement, stabilization or maintenance. And then you have to say, this is what my skills are gonna be med medically necessary 
four. So, so I'm going to tie that now to the next thing that comes, because if we get people this far down the myth busting trail, Karen, the next thing they say is, well, how am I going to write a goal for that? I mean, if I'm not going to write something to improve, I mean, our, our documentation is called progress notes. I mean, you want to see how addicted we are. That's Cindy's line, right? We write on progress notes. Uh, you know, Cindy, talk to us about goal statements. How can, how can maintenance patients actually have a goal statement if they're never going to get better? Well, I think, you know, we talked, we talked about coverage criteria and then the documentation piece goes with that because I can't, and I'm going to kind of work backwards because what we'll see at times is therapists kind of go, okay, I understand it. And then you go to the goal statements and every one of them says, maintain this to maintain that I'm maintaining strength to maintain ADLs. And it's kind of like, okay, let's, let's take maintenance out of it for a minute. That that doesn't measure anything. What ADLs are you talking about? You didn't give any sort of quantifiable way to say what you're trying to maintain. So the goal solution is not to stick the word maintain in there as many times as humanly possible. It's still looking at it as we should be looking at it is what is that quantifiable element? How am I measuring something so that I can demonstrate whether or not we've improved it or stabilized it or slowed the decline? And then the end piece is how is this functionally relevant to the patient? So I think what happens at times when Dee and I work with agencies about writing goal statements for maintenance, the byproduct is actually their goal writing overall gets better um, because I think we've lost focus. We, we think, oh my gosh, I have to have an HEP goal, right? Because that's another addiction. A patient will have, you know, patient will be independent with the HEP. Well, it doesn't say what it's for or why do you tend for them to do it forever? We don't know, but you have to have that goal. Then you have to have a strength goal. So, oh gosh, this is maintenance. Uh, I'm going to put, you know, increase a uh, quarter grade. And yes, Karen, I have seen that in documentation, the plan to increase one quarter grade. It's like, can you just go to maintenance and stop trying to improve in minuscule teeny tiny amount? How, uh, how, how is that measured? I, I have no idea. I, okay. I thought half a grade was bad, but then we get into quarter grades. We see assessments that contain the terminology of severely poor. I, I thought poor was like the basement. I didn't know there was a tunnel under the basement. Um, so this goal writing is really a good place to say, am I focusing in on what am I quantifying? Why is this functionally relevant to this individual? Then we're setting the stage as to why therapy is in fact necessary for this person. I think the, I will maintain this to maintain that doesn't really speak to that. And then we'll go, see, I got a denial. That means this whole thing is, is self-fulfilling prophecy. They don't pay for maintenance. I will never do this again. And it's like, yeah, but did you really cover what you needed to cover and speak to why the therapy was important and why they needed to have it now? But I think the extension of that, and I guess my way to push the ball back to D here, as it were, is, okay, so I've assessed them, I did my test and measures, I wrote some goals. Now the issue becomes, I got to establish a care plan. So how often am I going to see them? And this is where at times, you know, when we have the ability to see folks in person, I swear people's heads are going to start spinning around in confusion. Because we start talking about things like, you don't, necessarily see these folks every week. You may see them once a month. And then D, what about PRN visits? Can, can therapy use visit frequency? I mean, don't we have to go or see them or interact with them at least once a week or else this won't be paid for? 
Yeah, well, so talking about service utilization, I, you know, it's my answer is it depends. What does the what does the beneficiary, what does the patient need, right? And so do I have to go three times a week for them to stabilize function? Um, do I have to go once every three weeks? What does it take? What is it that I'm doing that is indispensable for them that only can be provided by a therapist? You know, they can't go to the local, uh, you know, green orange theory and, and have somebody work out with them in the gym and get the same benefit. What, why, why did, you know, why does it have to be me? And, and so we, so we have to have an understanding of what's it going to take? How often do I have to go? And so when Cindy's talking about PRN visits, that's like a big no-no in home care for therapists, right? Under the Medicare Part A benefit. In reality, it's not. Nurses do it all the time, you know, when they have to adjust Coumadin levels, right, for, or blood thinners, when they have to, if people are still even on Coumadin, when they have to do sliding scale insulin adjustments, when they have to run labs, when they update or they're changing wound care orders, they write PRN visits all the time. But supposedly, therapists can't do that. Well, that's not true, because think about it. I think in when I'm making this care plan, I'm not writing everybody for three week four. I'm writing this person five times a week because they just got out of the hospital for an elective surgery. And I'm going to go every day because if they went to an ER for a sniff rather than home, they'd probably get daily therapy, right? Okay. And this person was referred from maybe uh, from their physician and, and we're in the second episode of care, if you will, the second certification period. And they're, we're still ensuring that they are being, that they're stabilizing function. They're still teaching, training, oversight, checking, following up on, you know, 30 day reassessments to, to confirm that what our interventions are actually working. Well, if I'm waiting on a piece of equipment, maybe that I decided, okay, we're going to get them a splint or something to make or we're going to get them this, this device. And, and we have to go through all the machinations with DME. I could write that I'm going to go out one time a week for four weeks, but what if that device doesn't come in for two weeks? What am I going to do? Just go yada, yada, yada in the second week of that, that 30 day period. Or do I just write like a PRN visit that says, you know, when the device comes, if it's not, uh, you know, when I would normally go out, if it's not going to be there when I'm planning to go out, I'm not going to let it sit in my office or the back of my, you know, the boot of my car for another week. Um, or I'm not going to write an add on order. I'm going to have this PRN that, well, it's come in. I wasn't planning on seeing you for a week. Uh, I'll bring it out there, fit, adjust it, set it up, teach you how to put it on, don it, doff it, you know, check your skin, how to wear it, everything you need to do. It's the same thing. Think about when you think about Karen, when you tell your patients, oh, hey, if you have a problem with this exercise program, give me a call. How many calls do you get? I don't get that many calls. And then I go back out there and they're doing like rhythmic gymnastics with the TheraBand. And I'm like, that's not what we taught you, right? That's not the correct exercise. So, so this is a way, this, this kind of go out as often as you need to and not one visit more is appropriate, not just for maintenance, right? So, so writing, writing utilization is really hard for people to understand because they're used to seeing their patients every week. And that doesn't sometimes have to happen. How long do you have to wait to see if the exercise program was efficacious, Two weeks, three weeks, four weeks? How long? You know, you got to base it on what you know, what the evidence shows us, what 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 our you know our our scientific literature says. That's important. So, so I have one more myth to kind of finally push the ball back to Cindy, 
since utilization depends. So now we've got people, tests and measures, some kind of goals that aren't just written, maintain. We have utilization that seems to be very beneficiary specific. Cindy, now, because they're on maintenance, I got to see them for the rest of their life, right? Yeah, that, that's that's very common. And, and it kind of splits in two different ways, Karen. Sometimes it's the, I made a lifelong commitment because they could decline at any point in time. So by that standard, this is forever. Or there's the gleeful, aha, maintenance is a great way to go for patients that don't want to be discharged. So as opposed to them crying when I talk about discharge or the daughter runs back to the doctor and keeps getting orders, I'll just put them on maintenance and then everybody's happy. Okay, you can't do either one of those things. Um, You still are accountable to skilled, reasonable and necessary. So the benefit is clear. You can't just keep going or having them come to see you at the clinic just because you're nice. This does need to require the skills of a therapist. We're still accountable to all of those criteria. And as Dee said earlier, if there's nothing left to teach, train, or do, I can't just do it because you either don't want to unless I stand here or the caregiver doesn't want to. If someone else can do it just as well as I can, then this is no longer considered skilled. And that's what drives a decision to discharge as well, is when I have taught you what I everything that I can, uh, the program I've given you is effective. It is in fact stabilizing function. There are no more adjustments to make. There are no things that need to be changed. Then you really don't need me anymore. Um, And that's where I think that it comes back to, again, how are we defining our value? That I think we've gotten very used to They come to see us X number of times per week for this number of weeks in a row. Then we say, okay, you're done. The order is done. If anything goes wrong, then come back again. Where maintenance really makes us think about, a a term we use very often is how are we dosing ourselves? So thinking about ourselves like a medication, when do they actually need that encounter with a therapist? And when we've reached a point where you don't need it, there's nothing I'm doing that is uniquely therapy then we need to stop. But I think the hard part in that, Karen, is some of our skill, and he touched on one, oh, I adjust a piece of equipment and the family looks amazed. Yeah, because that is a skill. You, you know how to do that because of your training. I think sometimes a decision to discharge, we jump the gun too fast, whether it's a, a maintenance approach to care or restorative, by this, oh yeah, they got it, they understand it. I don't really, you know, they're just doing the same thing. Are you still contributing something? Are you still making any sort of adjustments? Are you convinced? Because on the restorative side, I've never understood these, you know, lofty strength and improvement goals for a two-week care plan that suddenly, you know, the, the, they've gained a, a whole muscle grade in two weeks. I don't know what literature I missed, but this 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 would be great because I'm going to go join a gym for two weeks when it's safe for me to do so. And then I will be fixed in two weeks. It's all done. So I think it again, challenges us to think about, have we done everything that we can? Are we confident as D you've said more than once? I mean, we've taken care of mitigating concerns. I mean, if they may have a completely unexpected stroke next week, I'm not expected to be telepathic, but I have looked at your condition, given you the tools and resources. And in fact, when there is nothing left for me to adjust or do, I am going to discharge. So there is active discharge planning and maintenance care. We are, we are not saying because of this decline risk, then I'm here forever. And we also have to be careful because a lot of beneficiary advocacy groups have done a great job educating our patients about this, who will then come at us with the resource. 
you can't discharge grandma because I've got this Jimmo thing and it says you have to. That's where I think some therapists have gotten caught and been like, oh, okay, that looks like an official document. I'm going to keep having you come to the clinic. I'm going to keep seeing you in the home. And it's like, wait a minute. That's why you have to know what the rules really are because Yes, beneficiaries should be educated, but they don't necessarily understand the coverage criteria very well. Just because they want this to continue doesn't mean it's automatic because of that Jimmo case. Yeah. And I think that that is where your judgment as a physical therapist and as the authority figure in that situation, you really have to come down firm on that and, mm-hmm. and be able to explain exactly why you're making that decision instead of just being like, okay, I guess I'll just keep seeing them then, even though it's at this point, not medically necessary. So what, what advice do you have for the physical therapist who might be in that situation? How do they then speak to the caregiver, the patient, et cetera? So that's, that's happened to me because I've been providing maintenance therapy when I had my uh, Medicare certified agency in Central Florida way back 2008, 2009, been doing it a long time because we get tired of people, we'd get them better and then they'd go off and then they'd decline and then they'd come back on. I'm like, we're missing something. We have to be able to monitor these people. I watch nurses do it all the time with the monthly catheter changes, right? Because most people are not good at self-cathing and preventing infection and doing it accurately. So they'd end up in the hospital, you know, with some sort of puncture or something or an infection. So, you know, monthly catheter changes can happen for years and years with nurses. So what were we missing? Here, here is the bottom line for clinicians. I, when I have taught and trained everything and my skills are no longer necessary, you ask yourself, is there somebody that could oversee that could carry this out with you? Because it really just requires sometimes the assistance of another person or a cheerleader or somebody to motivate you or supervise you. And we have a lot of patients that might have cognitive limitations and Even if that person isn't available, just imagine, just ask yourself the question. If that person holographically appeared in the room, right, and said, teach me, train me, and they were capable, would you give it to them? And if the answer is yes, then you should no longer be going anymore. So what I tell patients is I will say to them, I understand that you want me to come, but as a licensed physical therapist, I have a fiduciary responsibility to the payer. And the payer has requirements. And one of them is medical necessity. And at this point, you need to do this, but you don't need me as a physical therapist to do this. So I can teach and train you, your spouse, your family member, a paid caregiver, or you can pay me to come, right? But I cannot bill your insurance for this because I would be in essence, fraudulently saying it still required my skills, knowledge, and ability when I'm telling you it doesn't. It just requires another pair of hands or somebody that can be shown a layperson how to do this. And so they're like, oh, well, you come. And then I'll tell them this is what it costs to privately to pay for a physical therapist. And some people take me up on it. And some people say, oh, no, I'll get my grandson to come over. Can you show him how to do it? And I'm like, that's great. So so I think we have to, like Cindy was saying, we have to understand the regs. We have to understand this doesn't go on forever. We have to understand that when we are going to sign our name with our credentials, so hard earned, 
right? Through, through education and practice that we are basically signing an affidavit, if you will, that says, I attest that this meets the requirement of this third-party payer. If many therapists stopped, many clinicians, heck, stopped and thought about that, they might not provide some of the services that they're told they have to provide or do the things they have to do, but it's really comes down to our license. So when I sign that and say, this is medically necessary, I, I'm going to make sure that I show that my skills and, and my contribution to that visit is a billable visit. If I no longer am needed for that, then I can teach and train someone else or I can discharge them from the third party payer and they can pay me privately. They can, it can be a cash based service. And that has happened. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Guys, this was so good. I'm, I just know that therapists are going to have a much better idea of what stabilization care is versus maintenance care. We won't use that term anymore. Maybe we can, we can change that preservation of function care, stabilization of function care. It just, it sounds, it's, I think it sounds better for the therapist and quite honestly, like more humane, more human for the person that we're caring for instead of just maintaining someone you know, we're preserving their function. We're preserving their ability to do the things that they want to do. Just sounds so much more, I don't know, human than maintenance care. It sounds so cold and sterile. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I, I, no, no, I think, you know, for me, when you say that, it makes me think that we are helping patients be accountable for their chronic disease management right? We are teaching them what we know and how important it is for people with aerobic uh, impairments that they have to maintain that lung capacity, you know, within the confines or the constraints of that disease process so that they can continue to do their self-care, which is metabolically demanding, right? So, so, it, it really, it really shifts responsibility. I think maintenance is a very passive sort of thing that, you know, we're, we're maintaining range of, you know, I, I think, of, you know, people that were doing stuff too, versus we're, we're in, we're, um, we're arming people with the ability to manage and be accountable for their chronic disease and to, uh, and to function optimally within the constraints of those, that disease or those diseases through a stabilization or preservation of function. Yeah. Cindy? And I think it's important to, to just kind of circle back a minute that we don't want the visual now to always be maintenance patients or stabilization patients are very debilitated, have to have a caregiver, very ill individuals. Um, these, we can teach these types of programs to the patients themselves for them to self-manage. Um, I think sometimes, you know, okay, I'll give it up. It's not Parkinson's, ALS, and MS. I got that point. But these must be like really sick, bad off people. Um, they might be, but they might not be. They might be the heart failure patient that's functioning pretty well right now, but has a history of pushing themselves too hard. So the, now kicks in the f- fluid overload. It ends up back in the hospital because they're overdoing. How do you better task plan? How do you help someone understand when their disease process gives them good days and bad days? What do we, what do we want them to do on a good day? What do we want them to do on a bad day? Because we know many of our, our folks that are receiving therapy, because they basically think that we're gym instructors. We're going to you know, show up for the treatment wearing, you know, spandex and tell them to drop and give us 20 anyway. So we're trying to get past that. But 
on a bad day, too many of our patients, regardless of diagnosis, sit and wait till they feel better. Maybe, you know, with a recent orthopedic surgery, a little bit of rest. Okay, we encourage some rest. That's not a problem. And some of these chronic diseases, your one day turns to two days, turns to a week, you haven't done much of anything. And now you've compounded the problem. So I think you're right. It, it does feel like we're utilizing our skills um, in a more person-focused way, um, meeting them where they are. Um, but I think, you know, very often just briefly, we'll get the, well, what are the treatment interventions for maintenance? You didn't in this whole conversation, give us any treatment strategies B because it's not about the treatment. It's not about the assessment. We do what we do. We have the tools in the toolbox, but what, what are we trying to get to? What is the end vision for this individual? And then I'm gonna utilize what I know how to do best in that context. I just think for a lot of us, we felt that door was never open, that you were not supposed to do that, that if you could not show significant improvement that you had to discharge. And Dee and I have seen therapists, when you see the wheels turning, I've said a couple of times, we need to develop like a stages of grief equivalent for the discussion of maintenance, because we'll have people get mad. Like, I can't believe nobody told me this. And then you'll see guilt, you know, oh my gosh, I've had patients and I discharged them. I thought I was doing the right thing. I'm a horrible therapist. What am I gonna do now? And it's like, okay, let's just start, get the information and change what we do going forward and not go backward and be all upset and think we're horrible or mad about who lied to me and didn't tell me about this before. But we do need to start making a difference because Dee and I hear far too often, you know what, that was interesting ladies, but we don't do that here in this clinic. We're not going to do maintenance therapy. And it's like, wow, you just get to unilaterally decide you're out. If you want to be out, that's fine. But then you want to direct them to a clinic that does do it because if they need it and they qualify for it, then find them a provider who will. But this kind of, oh, I never heard of it. I'm not participating thing is, is very frustrating um, yeah. in the current environment. And it's, it's not correct. I mean, we have to understand beneficiaries have paid into this benefit. They are entitled to it. And if their presentation is such that stabilization of function is the appropriate course of care, they are entitled to it. It is part of their benefit package. You don't have a right to say, oh, we'll take you on care, but you know, you're not going to get that. That that's that's you you can't do that. I mean, you either provide the care that is within the insurance, right? I mean, think about it. If you went to Jiffy Loop for your 32 point checkup and they charged you 19.95 and and you only got 10 of them because they said oh we don't do those other 22 would you be paying for it i wouldn't it's like listen i'm entitled to this this is what i'm appropriate for it's part of my benefit maybe you don't do it but you can't determine that i i don't get it if it's part of my benefit package so it really comes back to the beneficiary if they're entitled to it we as professionals are not ones to say we can recommend and say i don't think that's the appropriate course of care but to sit, literally say we're you're not getting that component of your benefit mm. I don't think that would go over very well. Do you, Karen? <laughs> I do not. No, not at all. Not at all. Especially when, you know, like you said, people have been paying into this their whole working lives. If it is part of the benefit, you should offer it for sure. And if you're a physical therapist who says, I don't know how to do that, well, you better get educated and learn how to do it. Exactly. There's things that I am not the most... Uh, gifted at as a therapist. 
So I'm not just going to start dabbling in dry needling. Okay. That's, that's not my area. Uh, oh yeah. Just give me some, you know, go into the pin cushion and let me start working on you. It's a skill set, and it's something that you have to understand the rules and regs. You have to understand what the payer source requirement is. But we as clinicians don't need any other evaluation skills. We don't need any other tests and measures. We don't need special interventions. What we need to understand is that there are times that we are indispensable to help people improve and recover function back to a prior level or maybe beyond. And then there's times we are, we are needed, we are indispensable to preserve and stabilize their existing function so that their quality of life can continue on in the fashion that it currently is. Perfect. I was going to say, do you want to button it up? But I feel like that did it. But now listen, before we wrap things up, let's talk about the book, The Guide to the to delivery of home-based maintenance therapy. So talk about the book, where can people find it? Um, and what will they get out of the book? If people go and purchase this book, what are they getting? Well, they're going to get D and wow. Cindy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I'm going to start with. They're going to get us. They're going to get an Sold. updated. <laughs> they're going to get an updated version. I think it's the only book, and actually, it's our second edition, and really focused on community-based care, Part A and Part B for Medicare, right? Whether it's Part B in a clinic or Part B in the patient's home, um, and it, we really focus on the rules and the regs. Um, and we uh, and and literally walk you through common case scenarios. We try to myth bust, and we try to give you a how to, like how to start to think about this. Because I think theoretically, or conceptually, when she, Cindy and I talk about this, um, and we've been talking about this for eight or nine years now, um, and teaching on this. People don't disagree with this. They fundamentally understand. They just don't know how to operationalize it. They don't know how to, if they see it, okay, well, I understand what you're saying. I understand. I I agree with you. That would be, I could see where that would happen. But then how do I do these things we've talked about? So Cindy, what does this second edition really afford them um, this time around that, you know, is kind of like a value add? Well, I I think part of it, came from, we were watching folks, as Dee just said, understand the concept, but then struggling to say, I got to chew on this for a while. If this is really going to change my core, that I am not just defining myself by improvement, I got to work through some stuff and figure out how to do that. And so our first edition started out, we have a consistent scenario throughout to really talk about assessment and goal writing in detail and all of those pieces. But then as we looked at the second edition, we said that that's a good place to go. You got a nice consistent scenario. It builds throughout the entire book. So you have the opportunity to do that. But then this time around, um, you know, I think you got the sense. I tend to be more in the regulatory nitpicky wheelhouse and D tends to go toward the operationalization side. Um, and so she brought up, why don't we put a workbook with it? Why don't we add to that idea of a consistent scenario and say, what are some additional knowledge application activities? How do you come at that same thing about assessment or goal writing a little bit differently than one scenario to really get the juices flowing about how to do this? Now, the challenge is, is there a right answer? Like, do I just go to the answer key? And there was only one way that could have been done. Well, listening to this conversation, there was quite a few 
it depends. How often would I go? What would I focus on? So the answers give you some context, some suggestions, some validation, but it was not meant to be there's only one way to do this. And in a scenario, you know, five sentences long, you better figure out exactly what you would do all the way through this, only one path. But it's really to help kind of put those guardrails on and say, well, did you think about this? Or what about that element? To, to be able to say, okay, I am understanding this. So I could use that as an individual to go through that process, or I could use it as an organization and do it as a group activity, but to really help people continue to process what sounds like, yeah, I got it, but now I have a patient in front of me and, I, and I'm still stuck. Old habits die hard. I still struggle with the goal. I still think I can fix this. I, I still feel that voice in my head that's telling me if they're not getting better, you're not supposed to be here. So people need that opportunity. So we wanted to provide that in a tangible way um, that you know doesn't really lend itself to an educational event unless the thing was days and days long and people camped out with us, which nobody wants to do, um, but gives them that opportunity to come to step away, think about and come back to it um, at their own pace. Awesome. And just so everyone, all the listeners out there, uh, the book, The Guide to Delivery of Home-Based Maintenance Therapy, it's on the Cornetti and Craft website, but we will have a link that takes you directly to the book. And, and listeners, if you use the coupon code KK2021, you'll save 10% on your purchase. We will have all of that at the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under this episode. So you don't have to remember it. You don't have to send everybody DMs and things like that. Just go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. Click on this episode. It'll be under the resource section in the show notes. So we will make it very, very easy. That's all you got to do is one click and it'll take you right there. So now before we wrap things up, the question I ask everyone on the podcast is knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to your younger self? Come on, Cindy. I would say, oh, well, me, I, I would say to my younger self um, to be a bit more open-minded with how physical therapy really works in, in reality. Um, I think career-wise, we come out. I came out very. This is what I'm going to do, and and briefly, my goal is I'm going to work in a traumatic brain injury unit. I loved working with that population as a student. I'm going to be a famous therapist in a big old rehab facility. And now I'm going on nearly 30 years in home health and have never actually worked in, in, a, in a fancy schmancy rehab clinic. I started this kind of on the side, fell in love with it and never went back. I tell, I tell students all the time, don't assume that what your path is at the moment is the path and can't vary and can't change. Whether you go into teaching, whether you go into other avenues, um, there's a lot more possibilities. And it, and it took me a little while process that piece um, to say th there are many other ways you can utilize your skill um, to benefit uh, those around you. Excellent. Dee? I would say to my younger self, um, I, I may not come across that way now, 30, going into my 36th year as a PT, but I would say um, 
don't be afraid to ask questions and don't think you have to know it all. Right. So um, I, I think that I kind of stayed in my box a little bit more and got really, really good at what I did. Some of that time, Cindy was in a traumatic brain uh, injury um, uh, a locked unit. And I got very good at what I did, but I had a lot of questions about, but what if, but why not? Right. And I think sometimes I kind of just, Nah, maybe I shouldn't ask that question. I was a little bit too, con- you know, self-conscious about it. And so I, I, I think the idea is ask those questions, be fearless. And, and instead of asking, why would I do that? You know, look around, why not? You know, I'm a big, why not? If, if you've got a great idea or you have something that is like a passion and you've got, you know, that intersection of your passion and your skill set go for it, right? A good friend of Cindy and and mine, uh, Dr. Tanya Miller, um, started a vent camp for kids. Like when she was like a new grad PT, it's like in its what, 27th year? And she's written grants for it. And, you know, they take these kids on ventilators out in kayak. I mean, you can do it. You can do it. So be fearless and don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't, don't, don't think, oh, well, I don't know as much as Karen Litzy or I don't know as much as Cindy Craft. You know, start to explore that. The, the possibilities are endless. That's what I would have told myself when I was younger. Fabulous advice from both of you. And I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for coming on, for sharing all of this great information and your book. And it just sounds great. So thank you so much, Dee. And thank you so much, Cindy, for coming on. Thanks for having us, Karen. It's always nice talking to you. Pleasure. Uh, We had a great time. Excellent. All right. And everyone who's listening, have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.